We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. This is Hayat Mal and this is uh, pretty much a special place uh, where family members would come down. We would come down with our grandparents, um, do a lot of fishing, swimming, like spend a whole day and like in the afternoon. This is like mostly or every weekend coming down. These are my memories at Eight Miles and it, 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 I have a lot of story to this place. This is Roxanne Oakley. She's an artist living in Warabinda. She's showing me around Eight Mile, which is a short drive out of town. I'm actually born here as well. Um, I'm originally from country from Blackwater, so Black Diamond, um, that's Gungaloo country as well. So, But I have a bit of a um, rela- relation to this country as well. I'm born, born, born on the soil, so being very blessed from this place. There is a lot of water still soaked underneath, yeah pretty dry. I would love to see it running again because when we in this river as well, like fresh, clear water, low as, you can see the sand, we see all these little fishes. So <laughs> it was just all about fun. Just fun than the river, yeah, in the bush. You don't need any playgrounds to be happy, so the bush made, yeah, yeah pretty much a sacred place. In addition to being a prominent artist in the community, Roxanne has also taken on the role of sharing traditional knowledge and stories about the area and her people, something she's passionate about sharing with the younger generation. My role is uh, becoming a person just to help my people out to get on the right path and also teach them about their culture. Sometimes I do it when, like, it's some sort of days that I get... Because I see them wandering around the streets and I just say, we just want to go out in the creek for a while for a walk or something. Let's go check some good places at. And they know that it's very dry and they know that they're going to find any water in the place. But they get so fascinated of the stories that I would tell them, what this really meant to us and them. Sharing stories is also an integral part of Roxanne's work as an artist. Oh, my paintings are as well, becoming as an artist. All my paintings are really all about this river, Mamaza River. So that's where all the storylines came from, this river itself. Um, yeah, so becoming an artist for Warbender, it was so special for me to um, carry on for my ancestors. I had a break for a while, didn't try to find my way, what kind of person I really am, so few few years down the track and back in 2015 I got involved with some youth groups so they was trying to find somebody to help out if um, they can help her with some design so mm. I I put my hand up and I said I volunteer for any of these kids anytime for anything and I took on a role of doing I designed in 2015 for our festival it was their first festival first time I done it and I wouldn't think I'd done something like that, which I did when I seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, from then on, 2015, I just went skyrocketing. I couldn't leave that artwork go painting, so mm-hmm. I stuck with it because it was like a blessing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roxanne also has a role with the Wurrabinda Arts and Cultural Centre, 
where she conducts workshops and is part of their small team of arts workers. In her own work, she uses recurring marks and themes that speak about her connection to country and the importance of family. So mm. coming to my part of my workshop is all about healing. Mm. Um, so I've been through uh, tough rollers myself, uh, being in a car accident, um, losing my sister just on top of the hill here. Uh, and I look back to painting and the artwork like it's, it's really a pretty healing journey and mm. it's pretty much for our black people to understand. Um, it really helped me out. I wasn't on any white man medication. I didn't see any cancer. All my time and thoughts went straight to my artwork and this is where I am now, taking me back to country, yeah. I'm Skosha Monkovic and this is Creative Responders, a podcast from the Creative Recovery Network about how the arts and creativity can support and strengthen communities as they prepare, respond and recover from the impacts of disasters. In this episode, we're taking you to Wurrabinda, an Indigenous community in central Queensland, on Wadja Wadja and Gungaloo land. We'll be hearing about the healing capabilities of country and culture, and we're going to meet some of the community members who are sharing their cultural knowledge with younger generations. We'll be exploring the challenge of preserving and passing down cultural knowledge in the face of the massive disruption brought about by colonisation and how arts and culture can be a pathway to restoring some of these lost connections. Wurrabinda is in central Queensland, about a two-hour drive inland from Rockhampton. It was established as a reserve in 1926 by the Queensland Government as a replacement for the Turoom Aboriginal Reserve, which was being shut down to make way for agricultural development. Most of the residents of Turoom were made to walk the 200 kilometres north to Wurrabinda to the new reserve located on 55,000 acres in the Duringa district. Between 1927 and 1970, the population grew substantially as a result of the government's ongoing forced removal of large numbers of Aboriginal people from their traditional lands. The people at Wurrabinda came from many different language groups and from as far away as New South Wales and the Northern Territory. Yeah, well, yeah, 50, 52 tribes we reckon that were removed from all areas of Queensland. There's probably even more now, and from different places. G'day there, this is Steve Kemp. Uh, we're sitting at Wurrabinda at a place called Lily Creek. We come here to Lily Creek for the sake of the trees that are around, around us here. So, for instance, the uh, leaves that are shimmering in the sun right now, they're called poplar box. They're a very special tree for us. Uncle Stephen's connection to this area goes back a long way. His father was a child in Wurrabinda in the 1920s when it was known as Waruna Station, before the new reserve was established. Dad wasn't born here. He was born over at Duringa in uh, Rosewood Scrub behind the hall over there. But that was the association, and we, didn't, we were never removed from country. He was born in 1921, so he was six years of age when people came in, but we eventually we had to come under the Act. The Act Uncle Stephen refers to here is the 1897 Aboriginals Protection Act, 
which created government-held positions for so-called protectors of Aboriginals. This gave the chief protector, as well as individual protectors in each region, enormous control over almost all aspects of the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This included the power to remove them from their traditional lands to reserves, as well as moving them from one reserve to another. And then when people came into Woorabinda, there was no houses, there was no hospital, there was no food in the, in the first couple of years, or year, I don't know how long, but people had to build their house or their, their shelter. So that's where we use this Budgeroo tree. So Budgeroo tree grows here very, a fair, fair bit, you know, and it only grows in this particular area. So Dad reckons that's why they chose this site here at Warabinda because of the Budgeroo and because of the permanent water in the Mimosa Creek. So therefore, people put the bark huts up. At the same time, they didn't have the hospital. So Dad's old uncle, his name was Uncle Charlie Mummins, was the medicine man. And he used to cure people of all the diseases at that particular time, tuberculosis, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, common colds, you name it, he had a medicine for everything. And at that time, in 1938, I got a photo on the wall of, of Uncle Charlie Mummins, and he was a fair age then, he would have been poor, 70, 80, before the disease came in. But um, at 80, he couldn't ride a horse sort of really that good, so you've got Dad at the age of 10 or something, Actually, Dad would have been, in 1938, he would have been 17. But prior to that, ten, seven years before that, Dad started learning when he was about 10. He said, go and get the medicine for Uncle Charlie. Ride it out to here, Lily Creek, and get this medicine. Ride it out to uh, Pearl Creek or whatever, you know. And get the medicine, then he observed Uncle Charlie making the medicine to cure all these different types of diseases. So he had that knowledge. Uncle Stephen's father was showing and telling him about these traditional ways since he was a child, and he was given another opportunity in recent years to share in his deep knowledge and connection to the past. Dad passed away 2016, but yeah, in the last couple of years of his life he came to live with me, and the knowledge that came out of him then when he came back to country to die. So he's buried up in the cemetery there. He wanted to get buried next to his mother, so... But in that five years while he was here, oh my God, the information that we got out of him. Since then, Uncle Stephen has made it his life's work to document and share the knowledge passed down to him from his father, including everything from language and bush medicines to carving and traditional hunting methods. But the immediate and lasting impacts of government intervention and control created a deep disruption to the way knowledge was shared pre-colonisation and much has been lost. And even though they put us on the mission, we were told never to practice our dance, never talk our language, you weren't allowed to talk language. You know, you had to wear clothes and go to church and all this sort of stuff. I got nothing against church, but, you know, so that's how it was bred out of us too. You weren't allowed to talk. It's pretty precious that you have even the small amount of words that you remember from your dad. Well, we probably started out with probably 100, 100 to 200 words from dad. Then with the research of the linguists that came through, we picked a few few other words up. So when he came out in the last five years, yeah, picked up quite a few. So I think we went from from the linguist lists and from what we got, we, uh, we're up to 600 words.
A new study into the health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is articulating the link between cultural practice and language on health and well-being. The MyQI study from the Australian National University has been created by and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's a longitudinal study looking at how well-being is linked to things like connection to country, cultural practices, spirituality and language use. The definition of health as it relates to these communities goes beyond the physical well-being of individuals. It includes social, emotional and cultural well-being of the whole community. It's clear that the prevention of practising culture, speaking language and visiting country contributes to a huge sense of loss. And conversely, that cultural revitalisation can act as a buffer against the negative impacts of racism and trauma and can protect wellbeing, especially around mental health. So in a community like Warabinda, the work that Uncle Stephen and Roxanne are doing, along with others in the community who you'll meet soon, is having a direct and meaningful impact. I'm standing in an old Country Women's Association hall. The space is now home to the Warabinda Arts and Cultural Centre. It's in Juringa, a small town of about 200 people. The show that's up at the moment is called Stories on Country and we've got um, several artists in this exhibition. Um, on our main feature wall as you walk in, we've got an uh, artwork by Delphine Williams. And then on our feature wall, uh, we've showcased um, Uncle Anthony Henry uh, with his landscapes and paintings that depict uh, spaces in Morabinda. I'm being shown around by Nakima Williams, the director of the Arts Centre. I'm a Aboriginal, Torres Strait and South Sea woman. So my mob's from Koa, which is out near Winton, and then Kukunyalanji country up near the Daintree, Yarrabah, and my dad's family's from the Torres Straits from Stephen Island. Um, and then we've also got some South Sea in the family that were moved down to Yarrabah from Ambram Island. Nakima's an artist in her own right, with a background in photography and digital art, as well as youth and community services. In her early visits to the community to visit her mother, around 2013, she noticed there seemed to be a lack of infrastructure and support for the arts. The communities up north in Queensland, most of them do have an arts centre or um, have like a land council or a council who do a lot of artistic programs or galleries that they work with. And it was just kind of strange. I was like thinking, why isn't there anything here? Nakima's regular visits led to her moving to Warabinda permanently in 2015 when she took on a position with Red Cross as a youth worker. She began to expand the existing connections she'd made with the local community, who were working together to initiate arts-based programs. So we started getting some small grants and doing, like, artist camps and getting materials in and, like, from doing that back in, like, April to June 2019, we ended up having, like, over 100 people in the community starting to paint and make artworks. So I was like, this is, this is a really critical thing because most of the people who are coming were either young people or elders 
who just want to be outside socialising, but also playing with colour and paint is also a way for them to get things out of their body, whether it is like trauma or mental health or just physically like feeling better and expressing yourself. It's so important. The programs were gathering momentum, but the logistics were challenging without a central location to run them from. It's a tricky thing because, like, we started doing some projects and it was just here and there because there was no infrastructure and so there was nowhere to house your equipment or to um, have a base where you can regularly go to. The wheels were put in motion to establish something more permanent that could function as a multi-purpose space for exhibitions, workshops and community gatherings. This building that we're in, is an old country and women's association hall um, and it's been sitting here for a long time being unused. The Wurrabinda Aboriginal Shire Council purchased the building from the neighbouring Central Highlands Council and the refurbishment process began to transform the space into an arts hub. The project was set up as a partnership between the Wurrabinda Council, the Central Queensland Regional Arts Services Network and Central Queensland University. In March 2021, Stage 1 was officially opened with an exhibition of works from local artists, including Roxanne, who we heard from earlier. So the spaces, um, we've got a couple different rooms in this building that we're still in early phases of development. So once they're set up, we'll have a gallery shop and outside we've got our little... um, pop-up shipping container and we're still working on building a seating area and a space where we can have visitors hang out because once you have those spaces kind of your opportunities just are endless you can do workshops you can have talks once we get the um, sand for the dancers to have their dance grounds they can be doing performances we can have um, fires like conversations sitting around the fire we can have musicians so it's just once you build and add on to that it just keeps growing. Nakima is already seeing how the centre is providing opportunities for connection to culture and identity. But it's in our blood like our art and stories and dance and song it's 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 our culture it's a part of our identity so um kind of just once you get to know people and you, you can kind of see that in them, it's easy to try and get encourage them to tr- just try because that's the thing. Like it doesn't have to be good. You could just play with some colour and see what happens. And we, most of the people hadn't tried before and once they experimented, they realised they were really amazing at painting. We haven't even like taught them, um, we haven't, got in any expertise on painting they've just this is all raw talent so far which is crazy like one of our key artists in this exhibition um uh his nickname's big uncle um uncle anthony henry he is always a passionate like person for advocating about warabinda so since february this year like he didn't know he could paint and now he's um a like really well known in the community, but even just his personal journey, he's come in leaps and bounds in terms of just his confidence, his pride, and he actually calls himself an artist now before he was too shy and he 
is a big advocate for the power of um, art for healing because um, he said that it's really crucial for his mental health and his depression um, and he openly talks about that all the time and you can see that people who are around him um, they're also changing the conversation because that's the thing it's like bringing in art and is a way that other people in their families can see something positive that they're talented and it's changing the conversations from being surrounded by something negative as well. The opportunity for community members to re-engage in cultural practices is also strengthening their connection to country. Yeah, um, like art's another powerful way for you to start reclaiming your culture, um, especially for communities that were set up as missions. So Big Uncle, like, he... While he's been painting, he's been learning some of his language words. So he sings when he paints and he physically can't go out bush, but he says that he can connect back to country by painting it. And that's really powerful. And then other people, like um, the ones who are learning how to make artifacts, they're going out bush, they're sourcing wood and all their resources and materials from the community and from where they are and young people are going with them and... It's just about just continuing that so that the next generation can start picking up these skills and watching their aunties and uncle paint makes them want to paint and it just keeps the cycle going and just allowing them to do projects that they want to do is really important. The cycle of sharing knowledge between generations is a crucial part of the revitalisation process. As these cultural practices return, so too do the histories, stories and environmental knowledge that they carry. And the process of reclaiming this connection impacts the well-being of both elders and young people alike. Here's Roxanne Oakley again. Oh, yeah, with this big uncle that's been coming along a lot, and he said he hadn't been painting for 30 years, but since I got my workshop out there and we started getting... We've seen these amazing talent people coming in that haven't had the brush like for 30 years and seeing this old guy do all these fascinated trees, gum trees, he's like he'd been painting for years, but he's, mm. he's only picked up the brush after 30 years. I said to him that, you really, he really, that he really does inspire me as well in my workshop because I, I like him as an eldest to be in my workshop. And I said to him one day, you really inspired me. And he said, no, you really inspired me because you made me put my hand on the brush again. Mm. So it sort of, yeah, sort of touched me. And I said, are you for real? Because, <laughs> 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 yeah, so you're, my, you're my, one of my oldest, our eldest. And he said, no, but you're the, you're the, you're the right person for this right job. That's a bull from Mackay, you very country. Never seen one like that and I haven't spun it yet, but I will. Back at Uncle Stephen's place in Warabinda, he's showing me around his wood carving workshop and his native plant nursery, where he researches, relocates and propagates native plants used in traditional medicines. That's a lavender and I run out of lavender. So so through muskin, so it's a lavender and musk. That's the latest latest one. He also has a distillery where he produces soaps that are sold through the family company called Yarbin. 
The business is an opportunity to take family out on country, to collect resources and to teach younger generations as another way to keep culture alive. All my soaps contain Gumby Gumby flecks and maybe a lemon-scented gum fleck in there as well. Lemon-scented gum has antibacterial, antiviral. Gumby has most magical powers. Curve smell? Yeah. Gumby Gumby is widely known as an antioxidant and for its antibacterial and antiviral properties. Gumby Gumby is a um, native tree. It's Pitosporum is the first Latin name of it. And it's just the only way you can recognise it really is, once again, the trees that surround it and the colour of the soil. And that would be absolutely, absolutely the first thing. The second thing would be to take the leaf. And you bite into the leaf and it's nice and smooth and, you know, easy to chew. And you haven't got a taste. So very unusual. The next minute, 20 seconds later, the taste comes through. So when I'd look for trees and medicine, I'd taste the leaf, I feel the leaf, look at the vegetation, look at the dirt, and then just all doing checks, you know? Yeah, that's there, that's there, that's there, yes, this must be it. Uncle Stephen's knowledge of Gumby Gumby and other traditional medicines is drawing attention from the scientific community, and he's currently working on a major research project with Central Queensland University. The collaboration has been set up in a way that ensures the intellectual property rights and any potential commercial opportunities stemming from the project remain with Uncle Stephen as the custodian of this knowledge. Like the Art Centre, it's another community-led pathway to develop new enterprises based around cultural practices with direct benefits to the community. Along with the university research and his involvement in the local Indigenous Ranger program, Uncle Stephen's focus on education also benefits the youngest members of the community through his work with the Wurrubinda State School. All my life I really wanted to talk to young people, you know. So we went down there and we developed a program with the school. The program is geared towards giving younger community members access to culture and language from an early age. And we started off with body parts, to get the kids and you say a picture of a person up there and what's he, where's his eye, what do we call that and where's his ear and what do we call that and the kids had a ball doing that one and then we um, did body parts, we did uh, animals we created songs like the hokey pokey you know uh, we didn't create the hokey pokey but we uh, put our words into the hokey pokey so you, you put your left hand in so you put your mara in, you put your mara out for your hand, you'd put your dinner in and your dinner out for your foot. But all the kids were waiting for the last one. It was your bunti, which means your backside. Put your bunti in, you put your bunti out, you put your bunti in, you shake it all about. But they just couldn't wait for that one. So that was some of the fun we had with them. Now, say, say in the pre-preps and the preps and the ones and twos, that's the best time to teach kids. Uh, not just in relation to language, but in relation to use your eye. Use your hearing, use your smell, use your taste. All the, all the senses that we used to use. So it's about using your eye, you've got to listen to. So when I said to the kids, we're going to bush, but hey, hey, you fellas talking too much. If they talk too much, will we see anything? Do the other kids? No. Well, that's why you've got to be quiet. We've got to make hand signals. And that's the way we, we had to hunt the kangaroo, because if you were talking, we wouldn't find a kangaroo. And if you yelled at, hey, kangaroo over there, well, too bad. So it's all, once again, it goes back to observation, knowledge of old people, 
and uh, that's, that's their learning. So people will learn better out here and they'll probably enjoy it more. So we teach them, teach them all that. Milton Lawton is another person with firm roots in the community who is widely respected like Uncle Stephen as a custodian of traditional knowledge and is passionate about sharing it with the younger generation. Uncle Milton was also part of developing a program for Warabinder State School called On Country, classes that combine natural science and First Nations culture. He's instrumental in Warabinder's Junior Ranger program and is currently authoring a series of books about the life cycle of local animals and their connection to place. So I've been walking this country for 35 years with my mother's and father's and my grandfather's and my uncle's to, to understand what this place is all about. We're in the car, making the two-hour journey from Daringa into Carnarvon National Park. I've visited Warabinder a number of times now, and ahead of this trip was incredibly privileged to be invited by Uncle Milton to walk on country with him. I absolutely love coming out here. It's my university. It's my cathedral. It's where I come to nourish my spirit. And already I can feel the pain leaving my body. Hidden within the rugged ranges of Queensland's central highlands, Carnarvon Gorge is a region of towering sandstone cliffs, vibrantly coloured gorges, diverse flora and fauna, and is also home to several significant sites of ancient Aboriginal art. Uncle Milton has a role entrusted to him by his ancestors to care for this country. My old people have asked me to do this um, from a very early age to ensure that we're still singing those songs, we're still healing the country and looking after it, you know. I try to do something every day of my life to benefit the land, and that in turn benefits me. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't, if I wasn't on this journey. I could be doing something totally different with my life, but I was asked to do this by my old people. Carnarvon National Park is in the top four most visited national parks in Australia. The area we are walking through today is well known for the Natural Amphitheatre, a spectacular 60-metre-deep chamber inside the rock walls of the gorge, which is a sacred cultural site. Where we're going today was used as a, um, for all sorts of purposes. Some of, the, some of our big ceremonies in this region happened here, and um, so the, they traded here. Um, marriages, initiations. Most people come to Carnarvon um, and they experience that visual thing, there's more to it than what they actually see. It's, there's a really powerful spirit that if, it's, if you tap into it, it can be so beneficial. Uncle Milton has worked closely over the years with the Queensland parks and wildlife rangers in the area and is an advocate for the importance of Indigenous ranger programs. He also believes strongly in educating non-Indigenous visitors and workers about its cultural significance as a way to ensure its protection. Um, they have a role to play too in ensuring that this stuff is kept alive and strong. After all, we're all one mob. We're all, all a part of humanity. And the word, we, have a, we have a word for this here in this country. It's Yuntala. It means that's one in the one place. 
it's a spiritual connection between all living things and Mother Earth. Uh, so being as one with the land was the key to our very existence for thousands of thousands of years and is still very relevant today. It's a matriarchal story that sits over this country here. Um, so women have big status here, uh, as they should, um, everywhere, um, because they carry the story. We as men can tell the story, but it's women who carry the story for us. Roxanne is also on the journey with us today. She was invited by Uncle Milton to join in this richest of classrooms amongst the trees and rivers to learn and share in the responsibility of caring for this country and the stories it holds. I'm so grateful that she's, you, you've come. because it, and, and Roxanne, you in particular, Dale. You, you probably don't fully understand what you're doing for me today, but I can tell you now, it's, I'm very grateful for you to come along. Thank you. So from this point onwards, this is the last time I'll come to Carnarvon. My time is finished. I've done what, done, what I've needed to do, and, and now it's time for me to, um, to move on and I'll pass those responsibilities back to those people that should be carrying within my family. Our culture's not lost. It, it can't be, because it's, it's all intrinsically linked to our environments. You know, we, we had a deep association with the country, and um, that's not lost on us. And that's why I'm so glad Roxanne's joining me on this walk today. It's an opportunity for me to transfer some stuff to her. And it won't be in an oral way. No, it's it's a spiritual thing that's going to happen. It's important that what Roxanne's doing with her art and telling her story about her journey in life, it's, um, it's linked into this stuff here, this place here. It truly is. We start out on what will be a six-hour trek. It's a warm December day and the bush is lush and green from the recent heavy rains. The creeks are full and flowing and as we walk, Uncle Milton is a font of knowledge, full of generosity in sharing a wealth of stories and information, prompted at every turn by a particular tree or bird and other details in this country he clearly knows so well. It would be impossible to play you all the amazing things he shared with us. Feed about figs. Um, birds will get to these before we get. So as kids, we'd come and take the fruit just before ripening, and we'd wrap them in bark and bury them under the ground, and come back a week or two later and it's ripened. It was only chance. Otherwise, the birds would get to them to eat them before us. Yeah. We used to do that with a lot of our bush tucker as kids. The Maclazonians. They take the fruit off it and they'd sit it in their dilly bags in the flowing creek, let the water flow for a couple of weeks and leach all the toxins out, and then they'd pull it out and prepare it in the fire, and, and it was uh, high in starch, but it was also strong medicine. It's dark, so or the Morton Bay Ash. So we call him um, Buri Bundana, the fire carrier. So my grandson is six years of age. He's been uh, prepared re- to carry that responsibility in the family, so all fires will be lit by him and no one else in the family when we go into country. And what, he, what he'll be doing, he'll grab a stick, say, about... I know maybe two two inches in diameter, six foot long, stick one end of the fire, light it up, and he'll carry it all day. So within these roles there were those responsibilities and the discipline attached to that would ensure that it was done properly. Otherwise they were he was held accountable if that fire went out. If it rained, he'd stick it up a hollow log. Mm. Or he'd or he'd um, a bit of a kangaroo hide at the top, you know, like a sock. 
to keep, keep the coal. Keep it smouldering. And it'll just smoulder and smoulder and smoulder. <laughs> so he's, he's a special tree, that one. Uncle Milton is concerned about environmental damage from the high number of visitors and new areas of erosion that he's noticed along the way. I talked to the rangers and they said um, since COVID we've seen an increase of over 400% visitors to this place. And if that continues, we're not going to have a place to come and nourish our spirit. It'll disappear pretty rapidly. So that's why it's important that we be given an opportunity to educate people about these spaces. And that's really what's lacking is education. We're a few hours into the walk when Uncle Milton decides to take a break and let Roxanne and I branch off the main track into a sheltered side gorge that leads up to the moss garden. We're surrounded by cycads and palms, moss-covered rocks and soaring cliffs. So we down to the right spot? Yes. It's one of the most challenging parts of the walk so far. Oh, no wonder you don't want to walk. <laughs> you caught me a good one, Uncle. We reach the boardwalk that leads to the moss garden viewing platform. We can hear the sound of the waterfall, and as we reach the end of the boardwalk, we are met with a breathtaking sight. A waterfall cascades over the sandstone ledge, collecting in a clear pool, lined with colourful rocks and water-carved boulders. The walls are a bright, verdant green that looks like velvet, and tree ferns create delicate shadows on the carpet of lush mosses. The temperature is cool and refreshing after the summer heat of the main track. This is a moss garden. Wow. Probably they could have been their little laying out for the day where they wash themselves, bathe. Back to where they have a camp area. But this looked like a bathing area where they bath, take their kids. Look at the colour of it. We sit for a while to take everything in. And after some time, I ask Roxanne how she's feeling about being here today. I'm feeling pretty blessed today, um, coming back, because I didn't know what this trip was all about, but now that it sort of touched me, I'm coming through here now and I can see, like Uncle Mutu was saying, you're good for a role model to be in this place. And I can feel that I'm really touched already by the spirit, so... I'll be pretty happy to come back and make this country happy again. Mm. Good job. Um, pretty much got to get to know about this place as well, so I'll be pretty stoked if I do get to the point where I know how to carry the stories on for them, which I would love to do for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. Sure. It's, a, it's a big responsibility, isn't it, when you it, say carry those? Yes, children. it is. It is. It, it is actually in a way like how, how I. Do you ma- how do you manage that? I. How do I manage? It, it's well, with having my space and spending time with the communities and the elders. It's not back to my paintings, whatever I love doing. That's that kind of balance that keep me in the balances. Yeah, my painting, my artwork, my story. We head back to meet Uncle Milton. You beautiful, and I was stoked. I just yeah. couldn't get over that little spot with that little bathing part. Yeah, it was beautiful. Thank you, Uncle, for that. Mm-hmm. Bringing me back and take my mind 
to refresh me again. Thank you for bringing that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what you're doing, you know. You're I'm telling, feeling yeah. really excited and happy. Is, is the water flowing over the falls? Yes. Uncle Milton effortlessly navigates the hike back, as if this country were part of him and will always be that way. And as we reach the end of this trek, he takes a moment to say goodbye. I'm going to be last across, thank you. You don't mind? Whoa! With a ring, with a gun. Agundi, Annie. Yo. Uncle Milton has shared a lot with Roxanne today and she's looking forward to getting back to the Art Centre to continue her own work of sharing knowledge and stories with the younger members of the Wurrubinda community. Soon she'll be starting art workshops with kids and hopes to see growing participation from the community in the coming years. Oh, my vision would be, like, to see more locals step up and to make this thing happen. Um, because I don't know, down the track in five years, I just love to see the locals, small locals, just to step up and come and take some yeah, ownership. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully, I will engage them in that five years mm. with some <laughs> cultural stories and get that old people because they need to really know about their ancestors. Because the ancestors, that's the, that's the leaders. They are leaders and they need to, need to know about all these things. Back in town, it's easy to see how the Warabinda Arts and Cultural Centre is central to maintaining this connection to culture. I asked Nakima what was needed to continue this work into the future. I guess the whole um, basis of this art centre is inclusion and how do we leverage on that? You know, we don't want these young people to have to wait. We want them to find out what they're interested, what their passions are, and just go and have people in the community that they can look up to and be mentored by. There's a whole world out there for them. And just having a space where we can, one, just have a platform to tell stories that the community want and the artists want, but also to sell stuff and to sell products and sell artworks. The Art Centre is an example of how an authentically community-led initiative like this creates so many other possibilities for Indigenous-led enterprises. Even just the simple fact that we own this building is crazy. Like an Indigenous council own this building and all of our staff are from the community. Like That in itself is empowerment. It's not just about making money and making jobs. It's about like making change. We don't want to have these young people still going through the struggles that their parents or their forefathers have gone through. We want them to be able to dream big and actually get those dreams. Like we want to have our own products in the gallery shop that are made by Warabina people. We want the young people to make the coffee and work in the cafe. We want the artists to do the murals or to be the tour guides or to to do all these things and it's possible. So it's all about... um, what are the other Indigenous businesses that can link in with us and how do we help them grow at the same time as us? A lot of our um, culture was taken away or we weren't allowed to practice it. So having a moments where people can start practicing 
start dancing, start singing, start painting, is all that kind of road to healing. Uncle Stephen is busy working on the native nursery, intent on preserving the knowledge handed down to him by his father. He also has a community garden project in the pipeline. But also I've been approached by Blackwater, Blackwater Council in regards to a uh, garden and it's going to run from the swimming pool, the old swimming pool, down to where the big mining shed is. And what they're talking about is we're going to have a path and it's going to be winding down there and it's going to look like a rainbow serpent or rainbow snake. And beside, when you go to this, this circle and have chairs around and you have, this is the sandalwood circle and we use this tree for this and this and this. The plants in the garden will be accompanied by QR codes that visitors can scan to access audio recordings of Uncle Stephen and his father talking about each species and its traditional uses. If we put all our medicine plants in there, we'll pretty well guarantee that they're going to keep that going. So this is probably the best way that we could preserve it. Well, that's one thing I can say. I can leave all the knowledge of my tribe. I wouldn't say all the knowledge, but a good percentage of language, medicine, artefacts, wood. So I feel really good that I was on the earth for a purpose. Creative Responders is an initiative of the Creative Recovery Network, hosted by me, Skosha Molkovich. We'd like to thank Uncle Stephen Kemp, Uncle Milton Lawton, Roxanne Oakley and Nakima Williams for being a part of this episode and we'd also like to thank Julie Barrett for her assistance. If you'd like to know more about the Warrabinda Arts and Cultural Centre and follow along with the great work they're doing, you can find them on Instagram and Facebook. This episode was produced by myself and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Sound recording in Warrabinda was by Bo Spearham with additional recordings by Josh Burton, who was also the field recorders for our trek in the Carnarvon Gorge. Josh, thank you, mate. You've done fantastic carrying that all day like that. <laughs> Studio recordings by Tiffany DeMack. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. Special thanks to Sam Loy, Kate Montague, and the team at Audiocraft. This season of Creative Responders was made possible through the support of Bank Australia's Community Customer Grants Program, which supports projects that create a positive impact in the world. We dropped into our local branch in West End, Meenjin, Brisbane, to chat to area manager John Lowther and customer service manager Lisa Hurd about what makes Bank Australia different to other banks. We figured we're people put their money really matters and people making more decisions around where they do choose to bank. So first and foremost, we put customers at the centre of our thinking in everything we do. And we want to make sure that we make good decisions that actually have positive impact on communities and also the planet and the environment. As a customer-owned bank, one of the things that we do regularly is we talk to our customers about what are the issues that they want to see their back uh, act upon. And this is how we determine which projects that we do get involved with through our impact fund. One way uh, Bank Australia is making a positive impact on the planet is we are the only bank in the world with a conservation reserve. 
Our reserve is home to 225 native and 234 native animal species. And we're also making tangible steps towards reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians through our relationships and actions on the reserve. So it's more than just a conservation and you can read more about our 10-year strategy for the reserve and how we offset the total estimated emissions from the vehicles we finance with our car loans for the life of the loans on our website. We are very grateful to Bank Australia for their support of this initiative. If you'd like to access past episodes, transcripts and resources related to the themes we explore in the podcast, go to our website www.creativerecovery.net.au We'll be back next month with another episode of our In Conversation series and hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.